Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the chance tonight to sit under your word and pray that you would feed us and nourish us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage those who are weary, that you would strengthen those who are weak, that you would rebuke those who are proud. Um, Lord, would you show us how mighty you are and how powerful you are tonight. In Jesus' name. You ever said this, I could never imagine them becoming a Christian. You ever said that about anyone? I could never imagine that person becoming a Christian. You know, the people in your life who, they've got their life sorted, they're successful, they're happy, they are healthy. You're thinking, what would it take for that person to believe in God? Who are you thinking of right now? Who's a person you're thinking, I could never imagine them becoming a Christian? That's a bit sad. Yeah. Do you pray for him? Do you pray for the people you think of who you think, I'd love for them to know Christ? Last night at the prime dinner, it was an amazing night last night, uh, someone asked me uh, what was the, the best thing about my time in the UK. And I said, oh, it's having dinner with my friend Andy in Edinburgh. Here he is. Here we are in Edinburgh. I, I met Andy in 1988. Uh, he studied medicine. He topped Oxford for medicine. He's a bright cookie. Uh, he was a self-confessed atheist. We were good friends. I was a groomsman in his wedding. When I became a Christian, he mocked me. He antagonized me. And being that eager evangelical Christian, I invited him to every church service and every Christian explained course and he would laugh at me and he would tease me and he would torment me. By his own confession, he was a self-sufficient, self-made millionaire. He Facebooked me last January. Hey Paul, thank you for praying for me over the years. Because of your faithful prayers that we are where we are. Last time we met up, Abby was still a baby, we were still living in London, but to cut a long story short, our marriage went in a downward spiral and we were planning to get divorced. It was then that my wife Kate cried out to the Lord of her youth and quickly came back into a relationship with him. She started to pray for me and I was very sceptical and very, very hard-hearted. But God softened my hard heart. She gave me CDs by J. John, and every day I listened to them driving around the M25. God's word was being preached to me daily. And then one day, God totally broke me. On Father's Day, I gave my life to Christ. It's like he pressed the reset button on my life and put our marriage and family back together. He's done amazing things in our lives. We'd love to hear your news, Andrew and Kate. Isn't it? So here I am in Edinburgh sitting, having dinner with a good friend from 20 years ago and we're talking about Jesus and church and the Bible and we're praying together and I'm just sobbing, going, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. It's a lady called Jean Loder who used to own the news agents in Hampstead. She was a self-made millionaire. Being a good English person, I went down every day to get my newspaper and I'd chat to her and she'd ridicule the church and she'd mock me. I went in one day and Jean wasn't there, and I found out she'd been admitted to hospital. 
So I went to the hospital that afternoon, and I sat by her bedside. I said, Jean, can I read a psalm with you? I'd like that, she said. I went back the next day and read a psalm. I went back the next day and read another psalm. And by the end of the week, she came out of hospital. She was a born-again Christian. Wow. Never thought she'd become a Christian. Charles Colson, you heard of him? He's the man who was involved in the Richard Nixon affairs. He was jailed. Before he went to jail, he phoned up his friend Tom Phillips, and Tom Phillips had become a Christian through a Billy Graham crusade. And Tom Phillips gave, gave Charles Colson a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And as Charles Colson read the chapter on pride, he said it was like God broke him. And God humbled him. And he got down his knees and gave his life to Christ. Wow. This arrogant, proud man becomes a Christian. And I could share countless stories of people I know who I thought, I never thought you'd become a Christian. But God in his kindness and his grace and his power, he humbles them. So who are you thinking of right now? Who are the people that you long, you're desperate to come to Christ? God can do it, you know. We're in chapter 4 of Daniel. And God's people, the Jews, are in exile in Babylon. I'm sure they were saying, I could never imagine King Nebuchadnezzar becoming a Christian. And we'd have to agree with them. This guy is a, nut, is a nutter. This king is so opposed to God and so messed up and so arrogant and so proud. And you think, what would it take to humble this man and bring him to God? And the journey started back in chapter 1 when he first met Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he was impressed with Daniel and impressed with his God. He liked what he saw, but he didn't believe. And you know that, that, that people can be impressed by Christians or impressed by the church. That does not make them a believer. In chapter 2, he's this angry king who is demanding that people tell him his dream or they, they get cut into pieces. And again, he's impressed with Daniel. And he even says in chapter 2, verse 47 to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods and Lord of kings. You think, wow, has he become a Christian? No, he hasn't. He's still a polytheist. He's just hedging his bets. There's progress, but that progress is short-lived. You ever met those people where you think they're moving closer to God? They have some experience of God or some encounter, but then next moment they're a million miles away. That is Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 3, he's quickly forgotten God, and he builds his gold statue, a picture of arrogance and pride and self-worship. And again, he experiences God. He sees the power of God, that God rescues these people from the furnace, and God delivers. He's getting closer to God. Chapter 3, verse 28, he says, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Praise to their God. But he's not there yet. Now, I reckon if, if this, this, this man was my friend, I'd be asking, what more does God have to do to bring this man to God? What more does God have to do to show this man that God is God? What more does God have to do to open his eyes and soften his heart? Have you ever asked that of your friends and family? What more does God have to do to soften their hearts and to open their eyes? And then we turn to chapter 4, and it's like, wow. This is a first-person narrative. Nebuchadnezzar, 
to the people everywhere. Verse 2, I'm pleased to tell you, I'm delighted to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me personally. Is he really a believer? How great are God's miracles, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Wow, this great, powerful, confident man who needed nothing and needed nobody. He's totally humbled by God and he's bound the knee to God. And it's like God kept knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking until one day he knocked so hard the door came off the hinges. It's not a pleasant experience for Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the kind of thing that you would wish on people. But this self-sufficient, proud king finally says, no, God is king. And there's cheering in heaven, isn't there? Let me walk you through the story. Verse 4. One day he's at ease in his house and flourishing in his palace. Verse 4. Literally, it's a picture of contentment, success. Now, life is good. He's got the house, he's got the health, he's got the happiness. He's flourishing, he's content in life. Except he's tormented by this dream, because God speaks in another dream. He's so unsettled by it. He's alarmed by it. He hasn't learned the lesson, so he calls in the wise men of Babylon, but they still can't interpret it. So finally, verse 8, he calls in Daniel, but he still doesn't understand, because he calls Daniel by his foreign name, Belteshazzar. And he says in verse 8, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So he's still a polytheist. He's still kind of a religious person. And the dream is obvious, verse 10, there's a tree in the middle of the earth, so a cosmic dream visible to the whole earth. It's a picture of power. It reaches to the heavens, just like the Tower of Babel did. It's a picture of prosperity and shelter, providing shade and protection for the animals and sustenance for food. It's actually a beautiful picture, isn't it? In, in the Bible, trees are a symbol of stability and power and provision and life. So far, so good. You're thinking, wow, it's a beautiful dream. But then a tone changes in verse 13. And the observer or the watchman or the holy one comes down from heaven, just as God always does. And the message is very clear. Cut down that tree. Chop it off. Prune it. Strip the leaves, no protection, no power, no visibility, just this little stump, little hint of the former glory. And then the image changes in verse 15 from a, a tree, verse 15, just spot that halfway through verse 15, from an it to a him, let him be drenched with dew. Verse 16, let his mind be changed. Thinking, is he talking about a man or an animal? And the answer is both. Because the dream is about a man who becomes animal-like, crawling around like an animal for seven periods of time, verse 16, literally for seven years. And the reason in verse 17 is so the living will know, that you and I will know that the Most High is ruler. He is king. He is the mighty one. He is God. That is the dream. It's a picture of power that is totally broken so that he would recognize that God is God. And that's why Daniel is so hesitant in verse 19. He says, King, I wish this dream was about somebody else. I wish this dream was about your enemies. He said in verse 22, that tree is you, the king, 
Nebuchadnezzar, you are great and you are strong and you are powerful and you provide and you protect. But you know what? You haven't recognized that God is God. And for that, verse 25, you'll be driven away from people to live with wild animals and you'll feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven years until you acknowledge the Most High is ruler and he gives to anyone he wants. That's the interpretation. It's awful, isn't it? Let, let me imagine that tonight, God said to you, you are proud and you are arrogant. I'm going to strip away your health and your prosperity and your loved ones unless you turn back to me. I don't know about you, but I will be on my knees straight away. <laughs> Wouldn't you? But this man is so proud and so arrogant. He refuses to do that. You see, verse 29 tells us that for 12 months, he ignored the dream. At the end of 12 months, he's walking around on the roof of his royal palace. And just so you understand, the roofs are flat. And from the roof, you can see the entire city. So he's on his roof and he's inspecting the great city of Babylon. And like a proud, pompous, prosperous businessman on his yacht in the harbor, lying back, sipping champagne, going, how great I am, how wonderful I am. That's the picture. Nebuchadnezzar is strolling on his roof and our, our, our antenna should be up because who was the last person to stroll on a rooftop? King David? Just where he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's so complacent. He's soaking up his greatness and marveling at how great he is. Do you see that in verse 30? See this the repeated word? Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built? by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? Isn't that arrogant? Me, myself, and I. And at the height of his arrogance, the height of his pride, you get this voice from heaven in verse 31. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has already departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live like a wild animal and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven years until you acknowledge that God is God. And that's what happens. It's scary. His power, his dignity, his sanity, his humanity, it's all taken from him. And our God takes the most powerful king of the most powerful nation and totally, utterly humbles him and breaks him until he hits rock bottom. We know God can do that. He's not dead. God is gracious there. It's like a stump that remains. If he turns back to God, his life will be restored. Verse 34 is amazing. At the end of those days, that is seven years later, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. That's the key. That's the moment. He's not looking over his city saying, how wonderful I am. He's humbly looking up to heaven saying, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. 
I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 73, I was a brute beast before you, yet you're always with me, God, and you hold me. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire, I desire beside you. And then you get the amazing verse, verse 34, I praise the Most High and honored and glorified Him. And you think, wow, this guy has finally, finally come to God. I could never imagine him becoming a Christian. Let me ask you, who are you thinking of? Who's the person or people in your life you're thinking, I just long, I just desire for them to know God? Let me ask you another question. What, what, what do you think God needs to do to soften their heart or to open their eyes? I find this chapter wonderfully encouraging and liberating that, that no one is beyond the reach of our God. It's a bit scary at the same time. got three very quick points. Here's the first one. Accept God's timing. Accept God's timing. Uh, just so you know, from the beginning of chapter 1 of Daniel to the end of chapter 4, it's something like 20 to 30 years. So it's 20 years since he first saw God at work and first experienced God's power and drew close to God. Now you know, don't you, that only God saves and only God opens eyes and only God softens hearts. You can't do it. All you're called to do is to, to pray, to witness, to seek every opportunity to get them along to church or to Alpha or to Simply Christianity or Christianity Explored and, and, and to, to plead with God that they would soften the heart. But that's God's work, not yours. And I find that totally liberating. As I think about my family and my friends who do not yet know Christ, all I'm called to do is to pray and to witness and to trust God's perfect timing. And, and there are stories, you know, of people who walk through those doors one night, a total atheist, and they walk out of the doors an hour and a half later. They've been wonderfully converted. That's amazing, instantaneous conversions. But that is the rarity. The norm is that people experience God or encounter Christians or hear the gospel time and time and time again, up to 50 to 60 times before they actually believe it. So, so to trust God's timing. Trust that God is at work. I reckon Daniel would have been so frustrated, like Nebuchadnezzar, don't you get this? You've seen God's power, you've seen God's deliverance, you've seen God's miracle, why don't you get it? You've got to believe that God's timing is perfect. And I could share with you story after story of people who have become Christians 10, 20, 30, 40 years after their friends started praying for them. So please never give up hope. Trust God's timing. And sometimes that's really frustrating. It's frustrating because you want God to work according to your time and your plan. Accept God's timing. Number two, expect God's humbling. Expect God's humbling. You know, becoming a Christian, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, always involves some kind of humbling. It is humbling to acknowledge you're a sinner and you're not perfect. It is humbling to ask for forgiveness from a holy God. It, it is humbling to acknowledge that 
that you cannot earn your forgiveness by your good works or your church or your Bible reading. It is humbling to recognize that, that you're not special. You're just like everybody else because grace is a great, great level of whether you're a millionaire or live in a housing commission. You're all equal in the eyes of God. That is totally humbling, isn't it? It is humbling to come before God and to say, actually, I need to step out of the driving seat and into the passenger seat of my life. That is totally humbling. So whenever somebody becomes a Christian, it involves humbling. But for some of us, and I say this with trepidation, it actually means we need to be broken. It's almost like the more proud we are, the more humbling is needed. Because pride is a very dangerous thing. And Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man. See that again, verse 30? Is it not Babylon the Great that I have built by my vast power to display my glory? Do you ever spend time with those people where all they talk about is themselves? You sit in their presence and they talk about, well, I've done this and I've built this business and I'm successful and I've written this book and I'm wonderful. It's me, myself, and I. And it's ugly, isn't it? Not pleasant. There's a hint of pride in all of us, isn't there? In fact, our, our culture kind of promotes pride, self-promotion, self-assertion, self-reliance, self-esteem, strutting around as though we're somebody. But God took this proud, godless, self-centered man and shattered him. One day he's king, inflated by his own achievements. The next day he's a demented animal with no dignity and no mind for seven years. There's a truth in verse 37. If you want to memorize a verse, memorize that one. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He certainly is. He's done it time and time and time again. He humbled the people at the Tower of Babel. He humbled King David. That the story of the prodigal son is, is that arrogant young son being humbled by God. You ever heard of the lady uh, Joni Erickson Carter? She's a Christian lady who became a Christian after a diving accident left her in a wheelchair. She writes this. This is her words, and it is very confronting. I'm convinced that God's motive and God's purpose and God's plan in that accident in which I became paralyzed was to turn a headstrong, stubborn, rebellious, proud woman into a humble follower of Jesus Christ who would reflect something of patience and endurance and long-suffering and who would get her life values turned from the wrong side down to the right side up and would live a buoyant, lively life serving my Savior with the hope of all the heavenly glories above. Wow. She can say that. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that if we are proud, then God will bring some tragic accidents. And I'm certainly not saying the more you suffer, the more proud you are. But I am saying that all of us, in small ways and in, in big ways, suffer with pride. And so all of us need to be humbled. Let me ask you, when did God do that for you? If you're a Christian man or woman here tonight, when did God humble you? And how did God do that? I hear loads of stories now. 
It's when I got cancer that I turned to the Lord. It's when my marriage fell apart that I turned to the Lord. It's when I lost that job that I was desperate and I, I realized I needed God. And the scary thing is that God might need to do that for the people that you know and love to bring them to God. For me, it was 1990, and I was a pr- proud, arrogant undergraduate who thought that I, I, I knew it all. And there was, no, there was no tragedy, there was no catastrophe. It was just this chipping way, the realization that I was not a somebody. I was just a, a nobody who needed a savior. And once you've grasped that, then your Christian life is marked by this ongoing humility, this ongoing recognition that you need Jesus every day. So expect God's humbling, and lastly, and and very briefly, acknowledge God's rule. It's not just about saying, I need you, God. It's not just about saying, I need a Savior. It's saying, God, you are God. You are the mighty one. You are the ruler of my life. You're the king of my life. You're on your throne and I am not. That's what what Nebuchadnezzar does in verse 34. That simple gesture of of looking up to heaven, raising his eyes towards heaven, that speaks volumes. He's saying, God, you are king. You are God. You are the boss. And the eyes and the me's and the my's turns to him and his in verse 34. His dominion God's dominion is everlasting, not temporary. And God's kingdom lasts from generation to generation. And verse 35, there is no one who can hold back God's hand or say to God, God, what have you done? He's basically saying, God, who am I? Who am I to question what you do? God, you are God. You are king. You can do whatever you want in this world because you're the ruler. And I do think you can spot the the Christian man or woman who not just has Jesus as, as their savior, but their Lord. Because they lived their whole life saying, God, you are the boss, and you're in the driving seat, and I'm just the passenger. And when I read your word, and I, 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 I don't like what it says, I, I know that you're still God, and you are always right. And you can spot that person, because they're, they're full of thankfulness. Thank you, God, for that job, and thank you, God, for that house, and thank you, God, for my health. It's all from you, God, because you are the king of my life. So I need to ask you, Have you really done that? Have you actually acknowledged that the Most High is ruler? That God is king? Have you actually bowed the knee and looked up to heaven and said, God, thank you that that Jesus died for my Savior, but he's also my Lord, and I want to live with him as my Lord. When was that? Maybe over supper tonight, you can share stories. Maybe share stories about how God humbled you. Maybe share stories about when you finally recognize that God is king of your life. But I do want to finish with an encouragement. As I think about my brother and my sister and my mum and my stepdad and my, all my friends from university, none of them are Christians. And I've been praying for them for 20, 27 years now. And I'll keep on praying and praying and praying. And I, I pray with confidence. I pray with confidence that God is God. And in his good and perfect timing, he can save them. If he chooses, he can save those people and bring them to repentance and faith. And that's the encouragement for me. All I'm called to do is to pray and to trust and to witness. I can 
never imagined him becoming a Christian? I might not imagine it, but God imagined it, and God is all-powerful. Let's thank God that he is all-powerful, and he does love to save. So I pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are indeed all-powerful, and you love to save. Father, thank you for the way that you humbled us. And thank you, Lord, for the way that you opened our eyes and showed us how glorious you are and how our need for a saviour. In a moment's silence, I just ask you to bring before the Lord those you know and love, who you long, who you desire to become a Christian. gracious God, please, in your mercy and in your kindness, would you bring these people to faith? I ask that for Jesus' sake.